it's Stephen Henderson. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about fear, the fears that we carry around with us that hold us back from living our lives in the fullest way. Arash Javanbacht is a psychiatrist, and he serves as the director of the Stress, Trauma, and Anxiety Research Clinic at Wayne State University. He's got a new book titled Afraid, Understanding the Purpose of Fear and Harnessing the Power of Anxiety. We have a really great conversation with him about how we manage our fears and how we turn them sometimes into strength. Dr. Javenbacht, always great to have you here on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me here, Stu. Yeah. So I want to start with the origins of fear. How does it affect our brain? How does it affect our body? And why do we have this instinctual response to be afraid of things that we think might hurt us? Fear, I always say, is as old as life. So it's basically one of the deepest rooted mechanisms in any relatively advanced biological being, which has only one aim, to keep us here, to prevent our extinction, prevent uh, threats and horrible things uh, from happening to us. And uh, it has so, so it has evolved very slowly throughout the history, and fear is so primitive in us that my colleagues here at Wayne State University look at the brains of rats and mice to understand the way fear works in the human brain. So it's a very primitive uh, reaction which has evolved to protect us, not against having a difficult job interview, Mm -hmm. but against the threats that we were facing as we were evolving. So we're talking about, let's say, 100,000 years ago, a long time ago, what were the needs of survival for humans of that time. So Mm -hmm. let's say if this morning I was coming here and I was a little bit nervous about being on your show, being uh, listened to by so many people, (laughs) uh, talking to a famous reporter and anchor now here, I would be nervous, my heart pounding, my I'm short (laughs) of breath, my hands sweaty. Uh, mom's spaghetti on my sweater. <laughs> so anyways, I would... I hope that wasn't the case. No, that was not the case. But the reality, if, if I had all these reactions, it would be, it would sound illogical that the system which is inside me to protect me is now going against me, right? None of these reactions would help me have a good interview with you. But the reality is that the system is reacting as if we are 50,000 years ago. See, if, if I was among my tribe mates in this important, significant situation that they didn't like me, chances were high in a matter of minutes I would be dead or seriously injured or exiled. So for this, I would need physical reactions. Mm. I would need to be physically prepared for fight or flight or freeze. And for all of that, I needed my heart to be pounding, to pump the blood to the muscles and my attention being focused on anything that could go wrong so I could prevent them and breathing heavy to get all the oxygen I can for the action. So that's why we have a system that is confused in the modern life. It is there to help us, and a lot of times it does help us, right? A huge object is rapidly approaching you. You don't even think what it is or if it is a car. You just jump. Mm -hmm. That's an automatic reaction the first system is doing. But then, let's say I have a, like a meeting with my boss uh, in the next couple of hours. This system is feeling as the caveman woman would feel in reaction to the tribe leader. So in some ways, it's as if the evolution of our lives, which is away from you know, the constant physical danger that, that humans once faced, hasn't been 
parallel to the evolution, I guess, of our brains and the way our brains respond, that, that all of the inputs around us look really different today than they used to, but our response is the same. What's the reason for that? So the matter, the brain, the body, it evolves very, very slowly, right? We are talking about tens of millions of years for things, little changes to happen in different species. But the software has evolved very, very rapidly. And our environment, our culture, our societies, even compared to 50 or 100 or 500 years ago, they're extremely different. But I doubt that our brains have changed or bodies have changed over the past thousand years. So the environment becomes very confusing. The challenges that we have to deal with, while the system was evolved for reaction to very concrete threat situations, what, what, what would they be? A predator attacking me, uh, another human attacking me, which is the most dangerous predator. I'm attacking that other human, fighting over our resources, uh, and natural disasters. For all of these, I had to have my attention highly focused on some immediate concrete danger in my proximity and be physically prepared to fight it or run away from it. Uh, but now, what are the threats we have? Uh, uh, most of them are abstract, right? Yes. The threats of, let's say, nuclear war. The threats of uh, social uh, the disconnections and social uh, challenges we have. The threats, let's say a couple of years ago, we were dealing with the stress of COVID. Mm -hmm. And I believe this primitive brain is not well equipped to deal with some abstract threat as uh, of an illness that is evolving in China. And we are how many thousand miles away from there? That's why when <clears throat> the virus was expanding within China and then Europe to us, to a lot of us, was like as if you're watching the movie Contagion. Mm -hmm. Then it hits the East Coast, a lot of people in the, re in the rest of the country, still it doesn't make any sense to them until it hits, a, it's a, it hits at home and it's nearby and a relative or a friend gets sick or someone within the family, then a lot of people are like, wow, this is something dangerous. And then in those situations, threat perception becomes very difficult because how would I know how dangerous this thing that I cannot even see is? So now I'm relying on the alerts and warnings coming from my tribe mates that tell me whatever they tell me, whatever tribe I've assigned myself to, and then what they are telling me. Is it something dangerous? Is it not something undangerous? Somebody is wrong about it. Mm -hmm. Somebody is trying to deceive you. And that's why we, are, we get so confused. I, the metaphor I often use is that, so when you're dreaming, it's like something else, someone else is creating this scenario and you're just watching the play. Mm -hmm. You don't have much control. You may get terrified to what, uh, in reaction to what you see, but you can't do much. Now imagine where you're awake, that scenario playwriter of the night is now dreaming. <laughs> and that caveman woman is inside me with me watching, confuse everything that is happening around and react. So I feel those reactions in my body and brain, but I cannot make clear sense of them because a lot of them are automatic. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, uh, the relationship between these fears or these anxieties and anger is the dangerous dimension of this, right? That, that when we are afraid, uh, one of our responses is to be angry or aggressive uh, against the thing that we think is is threatening us. And that's where we run into to real trouble in modern society. Yeah. In the book, we have a chapter uh, titled, I'm Afraid So I'm Angry. Mm -hmm. And uh, we 
we'd say it, fight or flight, right? You perceive a threat. If you can get away from it, economically, it's uh, safer for your existence to run away. You run away. But if a cat is cornered, the reaction is attack, even if the human in front of the cat is huge. So a lot of times... Uh, we constantly are balancing out these different reactions and anger is a biological reaction a lot of times to what we perceive as a threat. And I have, uh, anytime I'm dealing with someone angry in my clinic, I see anger. My first question is, what are they afraid of? Mm -hmm. And anger can be incited. Anger, can, oh, we, we talk about how there are different ways of uh, being afraid of things, right? It could be personal experience, a very concrete way. A dog attacks me and I become afraid of dogs. It's an evolutionary way to protect me against the future threat and uh, destruction by other wolves. Uh, but I can also be told by my tribe mates, don't go to that corner of the woods because there's something dangerous. So perception of threat and danger could be totally told mm -hmm. by those I believe, mostly my tribe leaders. And the more dangerous the threats uh, relate to me, the higher I would trust him. You might, you might have a neighbor that you hate and you don't like him and you don't trust him about anything. But if you get out of your house and they tell you, hey, did you hear there's a gunman on the street? You will trust them. You will go inside and hide. Right. So when it gets to scary things, we trust our tribe mates more and that is a loophole because that can be abused. They can be used. We can specifically with a group of people we have never met. I can be told, listen, this group of people who look different than us, speak different than us, believe different than us, live in a different area, environment, they are after what we have and what we are. Yeah. And yeah. I believe, and then anger, and when I am terrified enough, anger comes out, and we all have seen over the past many years how that anger can be destructive to ourselves. Yes. Yes. Okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue talking with Dr. Arash Javanbakht about his book, Afraid, about our fears, how we manage them, where they come from. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Dr. Javanbakht, before we get to our listeners, I want to talk about a particular chapter in the book that I that I really enjoyed, uh, and it's titled "Courage is Not the Absence of Fear." Uh, first, let's talk about that title and what you mean by that. So, actually, uh, that chapter was one of the most exciting parts uh, for me to write, and had a lot of work because, like, it would be easy for it was easy for me to, as a neuroscientist to write about. Fear in the brain, fear in the body, those <laughs> mechanisms. But courage is a, is a very, very wide area and topic. So what I mean by that is that there are no humans who are not capable of experiencing fear. And if they are, that's a disease. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned earlier in the beginning, if our ancestors were unable to experience fear, we wouldn't be here today because they would be eaten and destroyed and killed. Uh, so we all unless we have brain damage, are capable of experiencing fear. And specifically when the threats are more concrete, we all understand and perceive them. If there is an angry bear in this room, it doesn't matter what experiences from the past you and I have. We both would be terrified. <laughs> uh, so courage is not a person who is fearless. Actually, fearless is a weird word which, is, uh, which doesn't make any sense. So co 
courage actually ma makes sense in the face of something scary. Otherwise, if I'm not scared of it, what's courage? So, <coughs> sorry. And that's why I, uh, I, named the, uh, I t named the chapter that way. There is something dangerous. There's something I perceive as, as threat. But again, in, uh, despite that fear, despite that uh, threat, I'm able to function better or interact and react to that uh, threat better than someone else next to me. And this is something that we see from outside, right? We see somebody did something that we wouldn't dare doing, but there might be so many different things happening in that person's mind. Hmm. There might be so many dynamics involved here that I don't see. And even the person, a lot of times I've had a lot of interviews with, let's say, first responders who have done something very courageous or mothers who have done something uh, courageous. And at the moment, they didn't even know they are doing something brave. And we can, we can delve deeper into that and talk about what are the different variables that determine courage. Yeah. I mean, I do want to spend some time talking about how you define courage. And, you know, the, the, the subject of the chapter, the title of the chapter, really does lay out the, the idea that you think of it very differently, I think, than, than we do conventionally. Uh, sometimes I think we, we mistake uh, impulsiveness uh, or bravado with courage. That's not what you're talking about here. No, absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, the first component of any interaction with something that is perceived as dangerous or threatening is threat assessment, mm -hmm. right? How dangerous really is that thing? Is that a chihuahua that I'm afraid of because I was bitten by a German shepherd when I was a kid? Or is that a grizzly bear darting at me? So, <clears throat> I mean, an important component of courage actually is an objective assessment of the threat. The threat. If I'm facing someone with a knife or a gunman in front of me versus a Navy SEAL uh, uh, facing that other person, we have very different objectivities in threat assessment. The knowledge a Navy SEAL has is not comparable to what I know of how I can predict another person's aggressive actions and reactions. So, and sometimes, as you mentioned, what is perceived as a courageous act from outside could be just uh, stupidity. The person didn't know there's something dangerous there and went ahead and did something and they, were, they just got lucky. Mm -hmm. So the other component is, as I said, the knowledge. Let's say there's a snake here and I get terrified and I want to run away. And then there's a zoologist here who looks at the snake and says, oh, I know this is a non-venomous snake. That zoologist looks very brave to me. Mm -hmm. But the reason is that they know. They know what is the threat here and what is not a threat, right? And then the other part of the knowledge is the skills. Going back to the experience, example of the Navy SEAL, they have a lot more experience than <laughs> me. So, and, and that experience and knowledge gives a sense of control. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm sometimes in the emergency room. Sometimes there are very angry people mm -hmm. in the emergency room uh, who are uh, not in control of their impulsivities. And when I was a first-year resident in training, I would be a lot more scared than uh, for a third year or now as an, as an uh, uh, attending psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. I haven't changed. I'm not stronger than then. I may even be weaker because I'm older. <laughs> but I know more. Yeah. I have better understanding of predicting a human behavior when they're angry and when they have potential for aggression. And I know what are my options and how I can protect myself in those situations. So that knowledge helps a ton. And then there's a component of motivation. Mm -hmm. And the motivation part is, let's say right now, a Russian soldier fighting and killing Ukrainians, what is their motivation? 
And a Ukrainian a soldier, their motivation is their family, their country, the feeling of unfairness, injustice that fuels them mm-hmm. to go and fight. Uh, so the meaning, and we have a chapter in the book about fear and meaning, right? The meanings we create or are created for us about a threatening or traumatic situation can significantly impact how we deal with them, how we are touched by those experiences in a positive or negative way. Sometimes it's even biological. Uh, so mice and rats, inherently their reaction to fear is freeze or run away. Right. They rarely Fight attack. or flight. Yeah. yeah. Most of the times, like a cat might attack, but a mouse runs away. It but runs. when a mouse or a uh, rat has pups, they become more aggressive. Yeah. Because just the changes, changes in the hormones. Because if they ran away, the pups would be eaten and their genes would not transfer to the future. So they become more aggressive biologically. A lot of times we have these parental reactions, right? For us humans, it's a lot more complicated than just hormonal changes. It's a lot of meanings. It's a lot of abstract interactions we have with our children that makes us want to protect them more. So there are so many variables around defining bravery. And sometimes those definitions are changed throughout the time. Mm -hmm. The concept of bravery for a veteran during the Vietnam War versus now could be different, right? Uh, Sometimes I avoid one fear by accepting it, by uh, dealing with the smaller fear, right? Again, going back to example of, let's say, a soldier, if I do or do not do this act, how will my society for the rest of my life judge me? So that judgment, especially for abstract creatures like humans, sometimes is much bigger than the shadow of that judgment is bigger than the immediate threat that we are perceiving. And that's why a lot of people uh, do things that in the moment look very courageous, but that's basically a trade-off with something longer-term threat they are perceiving. Yeah. Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us about your fears, about your anxieties and the ways in which you manage them. What are the things that uh, you think of when you think of fear right now? Especially, I think that's an interesting question, three years after the global pandemic that I think taught us all an awful lot about fear and how to manage it. Uh, What do you find yourself navigating now when you think of the things that make you anxious or afraid? Uh, You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today and we can include you in the program that way. Let's start today with Brian in Detroit. Brian, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Good morning. Hey. All right. When I was a child, my I was telling the story. My father, we were in the, in the bathroom, like a little tiny baby spider. And I was like, oh, I was afraid. And I was telling him I was afraid of the spider. And he was telling me, look how small that is and look how big you are. And what are you afraid of? <laughs> so ever since then, I've been able to not make myself afraid of things by, you know, by thinking about them at the same time you look at them, you know. Yeah. Yeah, like, afraid of like squirrels or stuff like that for no reason, because squirrels don't do anything to you. You know, even <laughs> even a rat, a rat will run away from you. So why be afraid? Yeah. So and so I, Brian, that that's a really great reflection of this idea of assessment, right? Uh, in in a situation where there is something that scares you or startles you. If you can kind of slow down even uh, and and really think about what it is that's going on, 
I think sometimes you can you can come up with a better with a better response. I think that's what your your dad was was asking you to do. Uh, Rosh, one of the things that I find is really helpful in those situations uh, is not just slowing down and not uh, reacting quickly necessarily, but but also breathing. Uh, and I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, one of the things that that I think about an awful lot when I'm here hosting this show is breathing, breathing slowly, breathing deliberately, breathing deeply so that my mind is freer. It feels freer to make good judgments about what comes out of my mouth in this case. But but in other instances where you're dealing with anxiety or or situations that make uh, that make you fearful, I think that breathing and and slowing down leads to better assessment. Absolutely. <clears throat> and now I have so many things to talk about. Uh, number <laughs> one is, uh, so at some point, if you allow me, we can do a two minutes practice of breathing and mindfulness with everybody on the show. And I promise it will be fun. But with, uh, coming back to the breathing. So one of the things slowing down of the breathing does not only it takes the attention from what is dangerous to here and something which is under your control, because the biggest worst thing about fear is things that we cannot control. Now you control your breathing, and when you slow down the breathing, you slow down the sympathetic fight and flight reactions and responses. Mm -hmm. So you're doing something mindful, you're doing a distraction from what is perceived as a anxiety-inducing experience to you, and you also slow down basically the brain and the body in a, in a real way. And going back to what Brian said, I think he mentioned something extremely important that all parents listening and those who will be parents should know. So when we are kids, how do we learn about what is dangerous and what is not? Let's say how bad or how scary is possibility of uh, uh, grading low on a test? For you and me, it's not going to be the same. How did my parents react to anticipation of having a difficult exam for me every time, right? If my dad looked terrified, I learned from him that failing or scoring low on an interview or an evaluation or exam is something terrifying and dangerous. So we look at our parents another evolutionary way. We humans learn from our tribe mates, right? And that's a huge advantage. But a lot of times there's a disconnection here. So Brian's father said, look, this is not something dangerous. So someone that he trusted was bigger, was stronger to us, our parents are gods, was telling him that this is not scary and mm -hmm. also taught him a skill. Okay, now look at the size, right? So using cognitive brain. So <clears throat> we learn from our parents and we internalize those fears. Even oh, I'm a kid and I see my mom is looking nervous around dogs. <laughs> Automatically I register that and I'm an adult, I see dogs, I feel nervous around them. So it's extremely important for parents. If you have unreasonable fears and anxieties, don't show them to your kids. <laughs> don't pass them on, right? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, again, Brian, really appreciate the call and the, the question. Let's go next to John in Oak Park. John, what's on your mind? I just wanted to know if, uh, if the guest could speak about cortisol in the endocrine system in fear. Oh, okay. That's a pretty technical question. <laughs> First of all, let's let's define those terms for for the uh, the rest of the listeners. Uh, but then, uh, Arash, talk about the the role that they play in in all of this fear and anxiety. 
So now we have to go back a little bit to the brain and how fear works in the brain, right? Uh, so when I perceive, there's this tiny thing in my brain next to my ears in the temporal lobe called the amygdala. Every time I see something, the amygdala has to decide what's the salience or relevance from a primitive aspect to me. Should I run away from it? Should I attack it? Should I eat it? Should I have sex with it? Basic instincts. And when I see something dangerous, amygdala, even that danger could be, you put me in the brain scanner and show me a picture of an angry lion. I will have the, my amygdala will, will react, even if I'm feeling bored and sleeping in the scanner. It's an all, totally automatic reaction. Then other parts of the brain come in and say, okay, I'm seeing this angry lion. Am I next to the lion in African Sahara or am I sitting laying in the sc brain scanner being bored? So then the, basically context is processed. And when the context is processed, we say, okay, amygdala, you're right. You should run away or no, amygdala, you're wrong. We should chill out. So then if the amygdala is perceived as okay and right, signals are sent to parts of the brain involved in physical activity and preparing for motor function, sending signals to areas of the brain that activate the sympathetic nervous system, adrenaline rush, heart pounding, breathing. And the cortisol is another part of that, a little bit slower reaction, which basically activates the immune system and prepares us basically for, it's called a stress hormone, for longer term, not like it, because sympathetic nervous system is in seconds and cortisol is longer acting, basically preparing the body to deal with the consequences of the experience we had. For example, I get injured and wounded and the immune system has to be ready to fight those. But chronic stress, because it dysregulates the cortisol system or uh, stress hormones and immune system is not good for the body and the brain because it will cause damage. Mm. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue talking with Arash Javanbacht about his book, Afraid, and our fears, how we manage them, how we keep them under control and come up with better responses. also want to continue to hear from you. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Rosh, I want to talk a little about PTSD and the link between fears and fear response and PTSD, but also how those two things are different. Absolutely. And it's a very important topic. So post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD is a disease, which is a reaction to extreme traumatic experiences. And I think it's important for the audience to know because these days it has become a fad on TikTok and Instagram, everybody's talking about PTSD. So by trauma, we mean horrible experiences like shooting, robbery, rape, physical assault, war, natural disasters, serious motor vehicle accidents, life-threatening illnesses, the situations that threaten someone's life or sexual integrity. Or the, this, uh, I mean, exposure could be of myself or I could be repeatedly exposed to those experiences of others as uh, like what happens in first responders, right? Firefighters, cops, dispatchers, EMS personnel, they constantly see the worst of what humans do to each other and themselves. So some of us, when we are exposed to traumatic experiences, develop a condition that the brain goes to fight and flight mode, it stays in the extreme fear and panic mode. It doesn't come down. So fear is somebody's pointing a gun at me, I'm scared. The shooter is removed, and then I go back to my life, and the fear goes away. But in PTSD, five years later, I'm still haunted by those memories. Nightmares, constant nightmares about it, flashbacks as if things are happening here. I hear a loud noise on the 4th of July. 
I see the explosions. I feel the explosions. Um, I can smell the smells. I can feel the touch of a, a per person who sexually assaulted me. And then uh, intrusive memories. Memories of the event keep coming. I push them away. They keep coming for years and years to come. I avoid anything that could resemble the experience or could relate to the experience, even the places, the place that it happened, the time of the day, the time of the year. And I'm always on alert. Basically, I'm constantly screening for danger to the point that some people with PTSD cannot even leave home, cannot be at crowded places or around people. So that is the disease which can be detrimental into a person's function and the ability to enjoy life and their productivity. And that's something that needs attention. And good news is that we have a lot of good interventions to help with it. Yeah, yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. Let's go next to Karen in Detroit. Karen, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Yes, I was, um, I'm retired from the police department. I was counseling rape victims at Detroit Receiving's Emergency. Hmm. And, yeah, it, it was interesting because I don't, you know, being a psychologist, I didn't have any access to giving medications. So I had to get kind of innovative in how I dealt with my clients. And one thing I found that was helpful is teaching them something called tapping and using their breathing techniques to help calm them down. Okay, so so tell me what that is. I, I'm not familiar with that term. Tapping uses the energy meridians in your body. It's like acupressure, but you're just tapping on locations, and it actually brings down the anxiety levels very quickly. Because hmm. I have PTSD myself because I'm a survivor. Wow, wow. Uh, That's Karen, why I was, so, I was so good at my job because I knew exactly what they were going what through. They were, what they were experiencing, yeah. Karen, yeah, what they were experiencing, yeah. Yeah, Karen, I really appreciate the call and and that insight. Uh, I I don't know. I have not heard about tapping before, but I do know that there are physical uh, inputs that that we can uh, give ourselves, even uh, in in cases where we're fearful or anxious, that do uh, relax us or distract us and get us to some of those things that you were talking about, Dr. Javenbach, about uh, lowering our breathing rate and lowering our heart rate in order to be able to assess fear. Yeah, um, I first want to use this as an opportunity to thank all the first responders in Detroit. I worked with the police, with the fire, with the emergency dispatchers. These people, on a regular basis, see the worst of what humans do to each other and to themselves. And yes. they just put their lives on the line every day of their work. I really, now that I have worked with them and I know what they go through, I really appreciate and admire what they do. But I think what, uh, I, what I can think of what Karen mentioned is that, so she's giving them two things now. Number one, what you mentioned. Basically, <clears throat> distracting me from the what it happened or what is about to happen, and bringing me back to here and now, and to my body, and also giving a sense of control because the tapping is something that I am doing and I'm in control of, right? And that <clears throat> allows me to feel more in charge because now I am the one who is doing this. The other part is that a person. Uh, who I trust, who's here, Karen, right? So she gave me a tool and I'm new using that tool. So it's basically like the transitional object. Uh, when I leave mom as a kid and I take my teddy bear with me, that basically represents mom with me, right? So now a therapist I trust gave me something and every time I use that tool, that's a reminder of the ther therapist's presence next to me also. So I can see all these different aspects of how this could be helping people. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, again, uh, Karen, really appreciate the call, uh, but also really appreciate, uh, of course, the work that uh, that you have been doing. That's really that's really important work. Let's go next to Terry in Detroit. Terry, welcome to the show. Good morning. What a wonderful show today. Um, I was hoping the doctor would talk about aging and how we uh, physiologically and psychology-wise change the way we process um, um, fear and anxiety. You know, if he's researched that, and is there some biological basis to how things change as you get older? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, you know, as we get older, lots about us changes, and the way we respond to lots of things looks different. And when we're older, uh, is fear one of them? Uh, I'm not a geriatric psychiatrist, so it's a little bit harder for me to exactly tell the details, but I can see the system slow down, especially if I've been exposed to chronic stress, anxiety, trauma. Over time, these can have a toll on the brain and on the body. I mean, the brain part is uh, some parts of the brain involved in emotion regulation can get smaller. And part could also be uh, the function of aging. And also chronic stress exposure can lead to a higher blood pressure, uh, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, pain problems. But then there are the nature of our fears change. When you are in your 20s, your biggest fears could be fear of not finding a mate, fear of failing in your progress, not uh, building a strong career. When you get older, your fears are changing. Now you're worried about your offspring. You're worried about um, uh, longevity. There is a big, big fear that comes, which is fear of annihilation. Am I going to be here? Am I not going to be here? When my own dad passed away, that was the first time in my life I faced my own death Mm -hmm. because I'm next in line. And that changed a lot of things in my life. For example, I decided, okay, the number of my papers and publications doesn't matter as much as the impact I'm leaving because my minutes are now limited. So these are the the nature of our fears and anxieties change. And of course, the wisdom that we carry with ourselves now help a lot of times and the skills and experiences we have learned, right? That help us deal with a lot of things that would be scary to us when we were younger. And that's why a lot of times older people are bolder people. Yeah. Uh, you know, we had a, a caller who couldn't stay on the line who asked about existential fears like the one you were just mentioning. Death. That's something we have no control over, not only not our own, uh, but but people around us. Uh, but there are also other kinds of existential fears in our lives like climate change or uh, the, the, the political battles that we see or or wars that are far flung from where we live. I think there's this sense sometimes of of helplessness that accompanies fear that maybe makes it a little worse, as in, well, what do I even do about this thing? Well, absolutely. The meaning we have for these experiences, right? How do I make sense of it or how others make sense of it for me? Specifically when it comes to political issues, and sadly these days everything is political thanks to media and social media. Um, because a lot of the meaning is created for me by others. A lot of these threats that we are thinking, I mean, so global warming, right? Or uh, political issues or what's happening right now between Palestine and Israel. We just, I'm not there. I'm not experiencing any of these. What I know of them is what is told to me by media, by social media, by the opinions of those I have on my circles on the social media, or the TV or radio channel I listen to. 
So a lot of these meanings are formed by us, and I think it's extremely important to have a fulfilling life, to be able to make sense of things on my own, mm. because a lot of times those who feed me something are looking for something else, something for themselves in it. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to death, fear of death, uh, so one reaction could be being terrified and paralyzed for the rest of the minutes I have. Yeah, the parallel I make is a lot of times, imagine you are in an amusement park, you know you're here for 10 hours, you'll have some fun. If you know you're here for one more hour, what will you do? Will you sit in the corner and cry? Or would you say, oh, I have just one hour, I have to use every ride as soon as fast as I can because mm -hmm. I want to enjoy. So how I can make sense of it, how I can make more meaning out of this experience, how can I continue myself through the actions I have left, right? This book I wrote, Maybe 10 years after I'm dead, somebody picks it up and reads it. So mm -hmm. I continue in some way. People whose lives we touch, people, things that we change, then that is a new meaning we create our, for our own mortality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Terry, really appreciate the call and the question. Uh, let's go next to Dennis in Dearborn. Dennis, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Hey. You know, well, I'm old enough, I had polio, and because of polio, I was left out of a lot of things. I wasn't picked for the basketball. I wasn't picked for the baseball. Mm. I, I had a fear all my life of not being picked, not being in. But I found the social, so that's the social setting. I, I'm asking the question, what does the social setting help us or hinder us in fear? So what I find is if I'm put in some kind of leadership I, I'm I'm looking to overcome that to make sure somebody's not left out. And, and I know uh, there's a show called What Would You Do? And mm -hmm. I, I watch that from time to time, and that inspires me to not be on the back burner. To not, you know, be, not passive. be left out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it inspires me. But that's a social <laughs> setting. All yeah. of those are social settings. Okay. Yeah, Dennis, great question. Uh, Arash, what's the answer? Uh we need two hours. Uh, so social, <laughs> we are social creatures and we are very much impacted by the society. If I put any, if we put any of us in the brain scanner, we show us a picture, sexless, black and white, uh, a picture of a human in the scanner that face is smiling or that face is frowning or is scared, my amygdala will react differently. Mm. A lot of times the reaction could be based on my past experiences. If I've had a tougher uh, past experiences, my reactions would be different than someone who had uh, fun when uh, they were younger. So we are extremely socially attuned because it makes sense. Again, going back to 10,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, if the tribe didn't like me, I would be dead. I would be exiled. But right now, I don't need the tribe to want me. I can still live my life. Mm -hmm. And the tribes are so big and so vast and so many that you can always find your tribe. But what I appreciate about Dennis is his ability to turn his own pain to basically a cause. And that I've seen a lot of times is helpful to people. Now he doesn't want anyone else to be left out and left behind. And creating a positive meaning out of difficult experiences is is something amazing that gives us a lot of sense of control and sense of joy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dennis, thanks for the call and the, the great question. Let's go to Emily in Oak Park. Emily, what's on your mind? Hi there. Hi. Um, in 2020, I had a really traumatic home invasion um, near-death experience, mm. which left me uh, feeling pretty scared at night for a long time. Um, and I still struggle with PTSD from the incident. Um, so I just want to thank you guys for talking about the topic, first of all. 
Um, I have found ways, like you guys were talking about, like deep breathing to kind of calm my nerves. But the one thing I'm kind of starting to struggle with is learning the difference between my gut telling me I'm in danger or just, you know, hyped up anxiety from PTSD. So I was wondering if maybe you could talk on that a little bit. Yeah, great question, Emily. And and I'm very sorry that... uh... That that happened to you. That's that's a terrible. That's a terrible thing to have to to process and manage. Yeah, I, I'm sorry as well. It's uh, unfortunately trauma is too often happening in our society. So one of it's it's it, I'm gonna give this most simple short answer that I am capable of uh, giving on a show. Yeah. <laughs> one thing that just came to my mind is that in these situations when you are not sure about how reasonable your fear reaction is. I say have a council of wise people in your head. So there are a few people in your life that you trust their wisdom and you know they care about you. Imagine what would that person tell you right now? What would be their assessment? What would my wise man woman tell me about the situation and how dangerous it is and what are my capabilities in dealing with this situation? And that helps a lot with pulling us out of our emotional brain and bringing us to our cognitive logical brain and having a more objective assessment of the situation. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Arash Jamenbach, it was really great to have you here in the studio to talk about this book. The book is wonderful, and your insights into the way we manage fears are, are absolutely uh, riveting. Thanks so much for joining the show. I appreciate having me on the show. Thanks so much. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. And podcast editing is by David Lyons. Our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET in Detroit. And you can support the show by leaving a rating or a comment. Thanks for listening.